Greetings, dear friends. Welcome to K9360. This is Jill, and I'm here with you on Wednesdays uh, in our 15th year of, of broadcasting here, sharing this program on KZUM. Thanks, thanks, thanks to all of you who helped us out last week with our fall fun drive. Always so grateful. So grateful for each and every one of you for your listening ear and for your continued faith and support of this fine little community radio station. Um, We can't thank you enough. So we're going to go a little sciencey on you this week. Um, Had a couple conversations with folks who contacted me about uh, getting a puppy and as you've heard me say here before, uh, genetics matter. So I thought I might dive in a little bit, did a little research, pulled together some information, and let's uh, do a genetics refresher on what difference it makes to understand how genes express express themselves with regard to uh, purchasing options, right? That dog that we have in front of us. Because the problems that stem from a failure to fully understand the exact significance of terms that we might use like dominant and recessive, as they're applied to hereditary traits and characteristics, um, the, the problems seem to be greater than those falling into any aspect of breeding dogs or show dogs or pet dogs or whatever. Um, The presence of a dominant gene cannot remain hidden in its carrier. So that's something to think about. As I said, um, I was talking to someone who was looking for boxer puppies. And she had been talking to a breeder who said that they had a female that did not have an overshot bite, but has produced overshot puppies in each of her litters though none of the dogs to which she has been bred displayed this fault. And they were trying to sort out, you know, what does it mean for the dog to have a malocluded bite? And how is that evidence of the quality of breeding or future problems or whatever? Um, the, the breeder said that an animal which does not show a fault of this kind will not produce it in any of its offspring. But she wasn't sure if she agreed with that. And the concern here seems to be a mistaken belief that the fault to which she refers, that overshot bite, is dominant to the normal mouth condition, but in fact it's recessive. And the fact that a proportion of puppies displaying a fault which was not visually apparent in either adult breeding dog is proof that both Sire and Dam carry the gene for that fault in their genetic makeup. So there's always more going on than what we can see when we look at the actual phenotype in, in front of us. So when we refer to a trait as being dominant over another, what we mean is that the genes for both are present in the same individual and the dominant characteristic only will be the one that's visible. The other the recessive characteristic is being masked. It's only when the recessive genes come together in duplicate 
in the same animal that a recessive trait will be evident. So, the breeding of the male and the female, each carrying genes for a fault which neither of them display, is always very likely to result in some offspring in which the fault in question will be apparent. That might be the definition of recessive, right? On the other hand, the breeding of dogs with both displaying the recessive condition will invariably give rise to a litter in which all the members will resemble the parents in respect to the defect, since neither parent can carry the dominant gene. Does that make sense? Let's see if we can dig in. So a problem shared with me by a, a colleague um, relates to chocolate dachshund, which was bred to a black and tan dog last year. Produced five puppies, all of which were black and tan. This year, the female was bred to another dog, also a black and tan, and has a litter consisting of two black and tan and four chocolates. This, my friend, considers surprising, right? But let's think about the reason, because the results are not surprising at all. If the true meaning of genetic dominance is properly understood, then there is nothing contradictory about these very different results from this breeding process, right? In the first breeding, we would suppose that the dog used was genetically dominant for black and tan in terms of color so that all the cells he produces will contain the genes for the development of that color. The eggs fertilized by a black and tan carrying sperm will give rise to a black and tan puppy while those fertilized by a chocolate-carrying sperm will develop into a chocolate puppy. Are you still with me? Right? Whereas in the second litter, the theoretical expectation would be an equal number of black and tan and chocolate puppies. The expected 50-50 ratio cannot, however, be relied on to work out exactly in a single litter. Were several litters bred using the same pair, right, spread out over time, the expected 50% black and tan and 50% chocolate would in all probability be more closely approached. Let me give you another example, sort of off the page here. Uh, when I lived in Columbia, Missouri, I had a neighbor over my back fence who had a yellow lab. Um, he bred his yellow lab to a chocolate, or not a chocolate, a black lab, not realizing that yellow as a coat color in Labrador Retrievers is actually black, but the gene is masked. I'll say some more about polygenic traits here in a second. But he didn't really realize that what he was doing was breeding dominant black to dominant black. And when he got a litter of solid black puppies, he was floored. And I said, what did you think was going to happen? And he said, well, I thought I would have a litter of half yellow and half black puppies. And I had to tease him. I said, so which half? The front half or the back half? The top half or the bottom half because he had undertaken a breeding with a set of expectations that, that 
operated completely outside a true understanding of how genetics, simple genetics of dominance and recession, recessiveness, how those work, right, in, in dogs. So if we go back to our discussion of the dachshund, the fact that in the case we're talking about, there are a larger number of puppies showing the recessive color than those in which the dominant color is developed does not indicate the quality of dominance has weakened or has passed from one color to the other. That, w- that wouldn't work. Neither is the breeding of a preponderance of chocolate puppies rendered the more remarkable by circumstances that the bitch's pedigree shows her to have more black and tan ancestors than chocolate. Right? You gotta, you gotta look at pedigrees that go beyond just the breeding pair. So that's why the AKC requires a five-generation pedigree minimum. There's stuff in the woodpile, the genetic woodpile, as my grandmother might once have said. A chocolate dog coming from two black and tan parents is no more likely to produce black and tan than one with two brown parents. The fact that it displays the chocolate coloration proves conclusively that it carries no genes for black at all. So if this female is always bred to a dog that is genetically dominant for black and tan, she will bear nothing but black and tan puppies as she did in her first litter. It's kind of complicated, right? But, man, genetics matters with respect to dogs. It really does. So the same principle applies to the inheritance of any recessive trait, not just color. It must, of course, be understood that the offspring of such a breeding will carry genes for the recessive quality, though their appearance may give no indication of this trait. That's what my neighbor didn't understand about his yellow lab, who was actually a black lab with a mask on the gene. In the same way, a dog which is genetically free from a certain recessive fault, which is widespread in his breed, may consistently sire progeny, none of which shows the fault, even though most of the females brought to him are themselves faulty, providing it is controlled by a single gene. And not everything in dogs is controlled by a single gene. It's true of us too, right? Not everything is, it's not just always a one, one-to-one correspondence. So, Having a clear understanding of this point is of really significant importance, especially with regard to KZUM Lincoln, KZUM HD. This is KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. You're listening to KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. You are listening to KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. You're listening to KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. You're listening to KZUM Lincoln and KZUM HD. Estás escuchando KCUM Lincoln and KCUM HD. KCUM Lincoln and KCUM HD. Almost all, arguably, almost all the roads lead back to this one single unafflicted dog who brought it with him and then it got moved forward as he was bred and as his offspring were subsequently bred. And now we test all of our dogs uh, through veterinary ophthalmology for progressive retinal atrophy. Okay, so the fact that a pair of contrasting genes, except in certain exceptional cases, 
in a pair of contrasting genes, one is completely dominant to the other, is also of practical importance for reasons I've just suggested because it, it emphasizes how futile it is to try to correct a fault by breeding opposites in the hope that the offspring will show the desired intermediate condition. For example, in a breed where a level bite, right, where the dog's teeth meet in a level bite is considered correct, it would be wildly optimistic to breed a female who is overshot to a dog who has an undershot bite in the expectation that the puppies will somehow even out. That is a huge misunderstanding of what genetics really is, right? Likewise, it would be just as reasonable, if you think that's reasonable, to breed a white poodle to a black poodle with the hopes of producing a litter of blue puppies. Right? That's, that's not how <laughs> genetics does not work like that. And so that's something we want to keep in mind. Right? Okay, here's, I said I would say something about polygenetic traits, assuming that you're still with me here, right? Some people seemingly have a little difficulty fully understanding what is meant by the term polygenetic or polygenetic characteristics. Many traits um, that breeders are concerned about are determined by single genes, but that is not true of all visual traits displayed by the dogs. I, I mean, all the things that you can see uh, when you look at that physical dog. Some of those things represent the expression of the combination or interaction of a number of separate genes. So this polygenetic thing applies, for example, um, to the size of a dog. Right? How tall the dog will be is polygenetic. You can't just look at the dog's parents and say, oh, he'll be 14 inches tall, right? There are several of the aberrations, the genetic disorders that I just mentioned that occur in dogs. Hip dysplasia is one. Luxating patella, if you have toy dogs and their knees are slipping, that's polygenetic. Color and color patterns are polygenetic. And there's a few more. It's only when various recessive genes and gene modifiers combine in a particular way that defects of these types become apparent in the offspring. Okay, so genetics, we're trying to keep it pretty simple here. Um, but genetics can be wildly complicated. And understanding polygenetic traits, uh, my mind gets a little... Bindi. So other gene combinations may give rise to somewhat similar defects or color arrangements, but in the varying degrees of distribution or intensity. So graded expressivity, right? There's ranges of color may display in many different ways. The frequency with which polygenetic characteristics crop up in a line of dogs will depend on how the number of genes involved are distributed throughout the members of that line or kennel. They may occur with greater frequency or in what may be termed greater intensity in some lines rather than others according to the presence or absence or even the relative rarity of some or all the factors that go into building up the genetic combinations that determine these outcomes. 
This would account for the occasional occurrence, just by way of example, of dysplastic puppies in litters bred from apparently normal parents, or for what seems to be unaffected offspring born to two dogs who have diagnosed, radiographically diagnosed veterinary um, uh, hip dysplasia. So similarly, a tricolored Dalmatian can be bred from parents of two tightly line-bred or what we call inbred, line-bred lines, neither of which is known to have produced the tri for any number of generations. The most likely explanation for something like this is that although neither of the animals that were bred carry all of the factors which, in combination, remember we're talking about polygenetics, cause the appearance of the tricolor coat, each carries some of them. When these genes are brought together through a breeding, they may combine to form the genetic pattern which results in the development of both black and liver-colored spots on the same dog. Are you still with me? Here's, here's a little takeaway message. Recessive traits that are polygenetic are much more difficult to eliminate than those determined by the presence or absence of a single gene. A large measure of control may be exerted by keeping check on the frequency of their occurrence in the line and by avoiding as far as you practically can, avoiding doubling up on any dog or female known to produce puppies displaying the fault in question. So we got it, right? This is why it's so important to ask the breeder, what are you selecting for? And listening hard to the answer. Right? Because if you're a breeder, exhibitor, professional handler, a judge, or a pet owner, you need and want to and deserve to find the best dogs. The best dogs that money can buy. And the best people. The people that are on our lists. The ones you would give your hard-earned money to. Right? That, that's who we're looking for. Most folks who want dogs are and can and should be discerning and, and demand excellence. Right? Why should you expect any less? But it can be easy to understand how difficult it is to come up with a list of individuals that we trust to find us what? Our next great one, right? Our next perfect pet, our next outstanding performance dog, even the dog with the, the personality that allows you to go smoothly through their training and then bring that charming, sweet, tractable dog into institutional settings where he can bring joy to other people, right? Who might not be able to have dogs or little kids who are comforted by the presence of dogs or who find it easier to read out loud when their listening audience is a non-judgmental, calm, friendly creature who just puts his head on your lap and enjoys the experience with you, right? What makes a great dog person? What does it take to become knowledgeable enough to be considered the best by your peers, 
by your friends, by your puppy owners? Do they acquire that talent through study, experience? Is it a gift? I think it's a combination. Those that are truly great are probably also truly gifted. I have had the good fortune to have known a few truly great dog men and women. There are others I have admired from afar, but didn't ever really know. Maybe they preceded me historically. The ones I know or knew before they passed on all had one thing in common. They could take a look at a dog and immediately recognize all of its strengths and in an honest, thoughtful, and respectful way, all of its weaknesses. If they were breeders, they could see the potential in a breeding before anyone else. I always thought these people were talented enough that you could take them to a goldfish show and they could look at the specimens and say, if you cross that one with this one, you would have the best one. (laughs) That's a gift I think that they have that cannot be learned. It's an eye. It's an aesthetic. There are some that have this ability but lack the passion to advance it. They don't have the drive to really learn about dogs. They don't have the determination to experience dog sports or training from every perspective with the goal of becoming the best. I mean, you can be a great breeder or a great handler or a great owner, but combining those three elements is complex, it's tricky, it takes time, and it's a lot of work. Those with a passion for dogs and the will to produce the bests are the ones who truly succeed and reach some heights that are just unknown or admired by others of us who don't quite have the courage to do things like breed puppies. Ugh. So who's on your list of the best? What does it take for your favorites to make that list? Because we should admire those talented, knowledgeable individuals in dogs and in dog sports in our particular breeds. We should admire them and try to get to know them and take what knowledge they're willing to give because they won't be around forever. They're truly a gift to us and to purebred dogs and those who aspire to own purebred dogs everywhere. Because isn't that what everybody always wants to know right away? Whether they acquire a purebred or a mixed breed dog is what what is he, right? And in order for that mixed breed dog to be something, there has to be something for the dog to be. And that path leads us back around to purebred dogs. Um, And the individuals who try to make those dogs into the best examples, the best specimens, um, the best dogs, healthy, sound, with proper temperament, trainability, the ones that those are the ones we really want in our homes, right? Almost regardless of what your goals are for the dog. I think every dog owner wants a friendly, sound, healthy, easygoing dog um, as a companion, as a 
friend, as a performance prospect, uh, as somebody you can live with, right? For 15 years, if you're lucky enough to have them for that long. So find that breeder who understands the importance of those genetics and uh, ask them questions. They've studied and worked hard to learn what they learn and possess the knowledge they know. And uh, that stuff can work to all of our benefits with regard to our fuzzy friends, right? Our furry little dog friends at home. Okay, y'all. That's uh, the end of our Science Wednesday uh, on K9360. Thanks, as always, for your listening ear. Have a great rest of your week, and we'll see you back here next week. 